This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Welcome to our podcast, COVID-19 and the Heart. Joining me today are Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, Chief of Cardiology Interventional and Structural Program at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, Dr. David Fino, cardiologist at Shelby Baptist Medical Center, and Dr. Mark Law, pediatric cardiologist at Children's Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome, gentlemen. And um, today, um, we're going to discuss the COVID-19 in the heart. And um, I'd like to say first that it's a situation that is uh, very, very fluid. Uh, what we talk about to, today, current analysis or discussion, um, will probably be totally modified in about a month or two. I mean, after all, it was just in February or, or March that we were describing case reports from Italy as, as well as from China, single center uh, reports from China. And now we're starting to have uh, reports from multiple hospitals, particularly out of New York. Um, also, some of the percentages that we're going to med- mention are very likely skewed because uh, we haven't had enough tests, not enough people are being tested, as well as some people are completely uh, asymptomatic. So it's very difficult to draw conclusion or at least exact conclusion in all the uh, numbers that we're going to talk about are mostly estimates. Second point I want to make, which I think is um, is very important uh, with this COVID-19, is that any viral infection can affect the heart. And uh, we have, for example, a viral illness, particularly with influenza, uh, that can um, uh, have a systemic inflammation as well as local at the level of the um, cells inside the, the arteries and can cause a rupture plaque. As a matter of fact, we know, for example, during flu seasons, there's more heart attacks and people dying from the heart than people dying from pneumonia. As well, viral infection can cause um, irregular heartbeat or you know, heart rhythm abnormality. We know from studies, for example, that um, with patients with uh, heart failure and ICDs, uh, there's more ICD shocks during flu season. In addition, we know that any viral infection can cause acute heart failure whether it's due to myocarditis or whether it's due to severe hypoxemia and and trigger a cytokine storm where the immune system goes uh, flaring out of control, or whether it's a stress cardiomyopathy like we've seen uh, sometimes with Takotsubo in patients that have such stress in the ICU on the ventilator or on the respirator uh, can have a cardiomyopathy triggered by, by stress. The other point that we want to bring today is that um, um, COVID-19 can affect kids. And this is the reason why we have a pediatric cardiologist here. Some people may have thought, maybe this is a mistake, I'm in the wrong podcast. Uh, But, you know, as kids are returning to to school in in certain countries, um, we know that um, obviously there are some patients that are are more predisposed to uh, viral infection. Uh, the ones with diabetes, hypertension, and heart failure, but children also uh, can be affected by these viral illness and uh, viral infection, particularly we've seen some with COVID-19. Dr. Law, I'd like to have maybe your um, uh, your input and your impression 
as to how many patients are presenting at the Children's Hospital uh, with uh, viral infection and particularly with positive COVID-19. So in, in our region, the numbers of uh, patients in the hospital has been very few. The hospital's testing all the inpatients getting admitted to try to screen for uh, asymptomatic carriers and, and even before uh, elective procedures and surgeries and uh, just to make sure that, that we're identifying the general population and trying to keep everybody safe. But the number of hospital am- admissions has um, been consistently in the one to two range with um, the, the PUIs or the person uh, under investigation being in the less than 10 range um, with that being a different category than all patients being, being screened. So in our community, we haven't seen the uh, COVID-19 infection and the problems related to the heart. Now, that said, there's increasing reports from places that have had higher numbers, uh, such as uh, uh, Spain and uh, Italy, and now in New York. And I think there was a case also from California of COVID-19 presenting uh, less respiratory, but more of a, a shock syndrome, um, a shock and, and potentially myocarditis or a, uh, a multi-organ uh, injury. And then there's this newest entity, which I've seen uh, over the, all over the lay press, um, which I don't see that it's been readily published in the, in the literature or peer review, but there's a lot of discussion about Kawasaki disease and COVID-19. Kawasaki disease is uh, an illness that's uh, diagnosed by multiple features, a rash, swollen lymph nodes, uh, red, dry, cracked lips, red tongue, and conjunctivitis. And it can present with uh, fever along with those symptoms for a number of days. And then ultimately, the grouping of symptoms leads to the diagnosis and uh, uh, the treatment, which is uh, immunoglobulin. As a cardiologist, we see kids with Kawasaki disease because of the end result, which ends up being coronary artery involvement or coronary artery aneurysms, and that's on the most severe end of Kawasaki disease. Um, But you can also see Kawasaki disease with aneurysms and significant cardiac, myocardiac uh, uh, involvement or myocardial involvement with dysfunction and, and mitral regurgitation, valve leakiness. The reports that are coming out are are now this association with uh, kids with rash and fever and systemic inflammation and meeting the acute diagnosis for Kawasaki disease. But I'm unaware of how many of those kids are actually um, moving on to have the diagnosis of coronary artery aneurysms uh, versus having Kawasaki disease with diffuse or excuse me, with COVID-19 disease and diffuse inflammation and cardiac dysfunction, and whether it's more of a myocarditis picture and a multi-system injury picture. Do you see uh, Kawasaki uh, in kids pretty often or on a regular basis, Mark? We do see Kawasaki disease regularly uh, in the hospital, and it's it's very common for us to make that, that diagnosis. Now, the number of kids that have Kawasaki disease with the true definitive diagnosis, which means you get coronary artery aneurysms, is a really small percentage. 
and uh, making the firm diagnosis is often often debatable because you can have incomplete Kawasaki disease with only some of the symptomatology um, versus what we would consider fulminant Kawasaki disease, which is cardiac involvement and coronary artery aneurysms. The the strange thing with Kawasaki disease is for years we've debated what causes it. Is it is it triggered by a viral infection? People have have alluded to certain viruses or a bacterial infection. And then there's been environmental entities. Uh, there's been seasons of, of uh, like the wind patterns of, in the Pacific Ocean have been indicted as changes for the epidemiology of Kawasaki disease because it seems to come in waves, um, but nobody can can actually put their finger on what causes that. One of the things that I, I haven't seen talked about, but I find interesting is um, Kawasaki disease has a higher incidence in, in East Asia and especially in Japan, but I haven't seen any reports of COVID-19 and Kawasaki disease coming out of, out of East Asia or the Japanese literature to my knowledge. It's interesting that uh, some of the cases that they were describing um, the kids with 10, I mean, usually these are pretty young kids with Kawasaki, right? They're usually um, less than five years old. Uh, the majority of kids diagnosed with Kawasaki disease are less than five. And the kids that tend to have the most severe Kawasaki disease are less than one. Um, and some of the reports that are coming out uh, with the uh, significant illness associated with COVID-19 seem to be older kids, uh, older than five uh, in, into the teenage years. So that seems to be a little bit different epidemiology for, for that pattern of COVID-19 associated with possible Kawasaki disease. There was some concern that with the, um, the stay-at-home orders and people being scared of going to the hospital, that the Kawasaki, um, you know, affected patients were at home on, on, discovered and untreated therefore and maybe raising the fear that we may have you know more severe case of coronary aneurysm kind of later on yeah we we try to treat kawasaki disease within the first week um you have technically you have to have fever for five days um but if you get out to more than 10 days or more than 14 days the um Data for IVIG and prevention of coronary artery aneurysm shows that uh, the risk goes up. And so I, I think we've seen this in different medical specialties is people's fear to seek medical attention um, of, of COVID-19. And so it's easy to understand how a child might be well enough with fever or maybe even test negative for influenza or strep or maybe even get a COVID-19 test and then stay at home because the families are afraid to go out and seek other medical care and delay the diagnosis beyond 10 days or 14 days and then potentially develop coronary artery aneurysms from Kawasaki disease has been untreated. So Mark, like just to clarify, um, reason this has become a point of uh, conversation is because a lot of newspapers over the last two weeks have been talking about this mysterious inflammatory syndrome and you probably heard all this and talked about it a lot more than us what's the talk in the pediatric world about that syndrome uh for for people listening that don't know what kawasaki's is uh, you know this is what's being compared to as a potential 
similar syndrome and people people are wondering whether this triggers this in people or are people thinking this is a slightly different um thing and what are you actually seeing this spike now because of all the news reports of people suddenly wanting to come in get care and in hospital have heart tests uh, we haven't seen a, a spike in people presenting and wanting to get care the uh, there's a lot of chatter on different listservs about uh, single patients or two or three patients that test positive for COVID-19 who have been uh, presenting in a shock and inflammation type of syndrome. So they come in in shock. Um, Their echocardiograms may show depressed function. They have lots of inflammation for all the different tests that are, that are being performed and it's it's not clear to me how much of that is actually overlapping with Kawasaki disease versus just a fulminant viral illness. And then there's a lot of chatter about it not being the, the fulminant viral illness, but a post-inflammatory type illness where the, the body sort of get, um, the immune system gets revved up after the infection and starts a, a immunologic response that just causes so much inflammation that they end up presenting in shock. And that, that characteristic I think is different than what the initial reports for all the adults or the standard adult reports, which is, which is really respiratory in nature, ARDS, as far as the, the uh, COVID-19 classic SARS which I think I'm, I'm here to learn a little bit more about what the uh, adult presentation for COVID-19 and the myocardial stuff and whether it's myocardial infarction, whether you guys are seeing myocarditis or arrhythmia, or if it's um, patients who are at risk who are then getting stressed and then having cardiac complications secondary to their illness. Well, I think the... Mark, uh, I can... Yeah. Uh, before I was kind of mentioning, uh, you know, from the CDC was describing the COVID-19 as a, a pandemic as primarily being a respiratory, you know, problem with 80% actually presenting with symptoms of, you know, cough and, and shortness of breath, but 80% of the patients, and this is just an estimate again, <clears throat> presenting with mild symptoms, while approximately 50 have moderate to severe disease and require hospitalization and another 5% with very critical illness presenting with, you know, acute respiratory distress and shock and requiring ICU intubation and sometimes even ECMO. And I think what we're looking at is probably uh, a a potential of, um, you know, 15 to 20% 20 of patients that may have their heart affected, you know, by this illness. Uh, to keep that just in perspective, when we talk about this pandemic uh, in the adult, um, that's CDC estimate. David, uh, Dr. Fino, um, you were going to mention something? Yeah, Mark, I, I, and I would be interested, doctors uh, Ahmed and Bouchard, about your opinion on this, uh, you know, 20 miles away down in Alabaster, just about every one of these COVID-19 patients has a positive troponin, something like uh, in excess of 80%. And like the rest of the world, um, a lot of people 
you know, the ones that we pay attention to. Um, and I'm talking about inpatients, particularly ICU patients. Um, they're pretty sick by the time we're testing them. So we also have a very high sensitivity troponin, which is a conversation unto itself, right? Um, but I, I think the points about um, a real substantial risk of myocarditis and then a very substantial risk of a coronary event uh, that's related to the stress that's caused with the illness. I think that's definitely um, something we all have to keep in mind. It, just, it makes everything worse is, is my feeling. So, Mark, while we kind of have you on the line, a um, few questions. What do you, what is the advice currently to kids or, or parents that are, that come in contact with people that have had COVID? What is the, uh, what, what is the treatment for that? Are they isolating or not? Is it, is it being taken very seriously in kids' communities? And, and I say that because, you know, many schools are thinking about potentially reopening. And is this something that, that concerns people? Because when the whole uh, COVID crisis first started, it was seen as this disease that kids didn't really get affected by and people weren't really worried about it. Is that changing over time? And, what kind of advice are you giving people? The other thing is, are, are kids seen as a large vector of disease, which means, you know, are they, are they kind of carrying this thing? And it's because there have not really been many tests, right, in kids. There have been hundreds of thousands, millions of tests in, in adults, but no one's really tested uh, kids. What, what advice are people giving to them? So I, th- I think that brings up a number of different issues. Um, one is because of how the testing has been done with uh, limited tests initially and then more tests, but still not really the ability to do rapid mass screening. We're not, we're not to that place yet. So, so you're holding back from the beginning on testing your least vulnerable population, which is still felt to be kids. Um, and then if kids have contacts, the recommendation has been to quarantine. Um, and for the most part, I think that's a population that has been able to quarantine because the schools have uh, been closed and, and canceled. And so kids haven't been in close contact with, with each other. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me that kids wouldn't get the virus if come into contact and that we have to be under recognizing the population of kids who actually have the, have the virus. And my bias and listen to uh, how other countries have potentially opened and how the public health people talk and how the Alabama public health people talk is when you think about restoring mass gatherings, you have to think about identifying carriers and quarantining people who are exposed. And that's going to have to involve mass testing. And I think in order to get to that point of reopening schools, colleges and, and high schools and middle schools, grade schools that, we have to identify which kid's going to walk into the school and have the, have the, the virus, who they could have spread it to, who then 
contracts it and then how they're quarantined. Um, I think that's not necessarily talked a lot. Um, it may be talked about in the school administration about doing that in the future, but I think they have a real high potential to be vectors and that we've sort of quieted them down as we've closed schools. Do they have the same symptoms? I think mostly. Do kids have the same symptoms as adults, or are they just asymptomatic? I think we'll find that if we tested lots of kids, that we would find a proportion of kids would test positive as the proportion of adults in a community. We've seen at least two patients with adult congenital, congenital, congenital heart disease that had been surgically corrected. One was a uh, um, transposition of the great vessels and one was a corrected tetralogy. And both of them were ICU patients. They were young, uh, 20s, late 20s. And I know you and I share a number of patients um, with uh, who are their kids who become adults with these things. And the CDC doesn't really have any definite recommendations on COVID and kids with congenital heart disease, but boy, my feeling is they, they go into failure, heart failure and respiratory failure at the drop of a dime. And I wonder if you have any, any feeling for that. Any, I wonder if you can help any of us out there managing these patients in the ICU, any, any, just any thoughts at all. Yeah, I think we don't know what the effects of congenital heart disease at different age levels and COVID-19 are going to be. Um, I worry that our our babies less than one year of age who aren't corrected, um, if they get the the illness, that that stress may may be enough. Um, But we're seeing so little lung disease that it's a a little hard to know for sure. But I worry the the at-risk population could be the adult congenital population who will be at risk to get respiratory symptoms and then the combination of their respiratory disease and their cardiac disease will land them very sick. Um, I don't know that I have any particular advice on how to how to mitigate uh, that um, if it if it happens other than the same supportive care that other other adults with other medical problems would present. I just think their risk is likely to be when they're 20s or 30s as opposed to what's often reported in the lay press as people over the age of 50 or 60 being at higher risk. I think our 20 and 30 and 40-year-old adult genitals will be at that same level of risk. My my feeling exactly, uh, Mark. And the second question I had is that, you know, the peds population, um, there's there's a huge incidence of asthma, um, reactive airways disease, seasonal allergies, and we're at the spring. I wonder if you have any feeling for, and I know you're a cardiologist, but I wonder if you have any feeling for respiratory insufficiency that's related to um, COVID and whether or not we're seeing worsening as, asthma exacerbations that ultimately lead to hypoxic complications that, that we all get called for. I wonder if you had any feeling for that. I, I don't have too much to, to offer along those lines. I, 
do wonder how our kids with significant asthmatic disease that often flare up uh, when seasonal allergies flare up around this time and whether the combination of kids with asthmatic disease, seasonal allergies, and then come across COVID-19, whether they will uh, find themselves to have significant ventilation problems and get uh, need ICU support. I'd have to say at the moment, we haven't haven't seen that in the community, but I do wonder if that will be a presentation for the future. So I have a question of you, Mark. So in the adult hospitals, COVID led to this widespread shutdown almost uh, at the beginning while people were preparing for this um, onslaught, you know, of, uh, of patients coming in. And a big concern for adults uh, hospitals is people that need care, um, people that are having acute issues. They're not coming to hospital. Um, it's taken. Uh, we're still in the middle of the ramp up process, as we call it. We don't know if there's going to be a, a second wave of this thing. Um, slowly, we're seeing improvements, but we we can talk about a number of conditions where. Adults are just presenting later with more severe disease, with the damage already done and uh, not getting the care they need. And how has this just affected a children's hospital? Has there been, uh, is there concerns that children that need care are not presenting? And not just to a hospital, I mean to primary care doctors and other doctors. Is there this thing that you're seeing about uh, people avoiding uh, medical places? And is there concerns and education that needs to be done about that to to uh, stop bad things happening as a collateral damage? I think everybody has seen a drop in care on all sorts of levels, uh, and it can be broken down in, in different aspects. So I think primary care essentially shut down for a period of time. So general well care, with the exception of immunizations, was uh, was pretty much done during April and then it started to ramp back up in May. And the same has been for our chronic uh, cardiac care in outpatients for kids is uh, our patients who have come for their yearly visits um, have been postponed or, or delayed with phone calls, checking to make sure that they're still functioning. Okay. And then it's, it's been, kids who have had the need for elective procedures, whether they're cardiac or non-cardiac, they have been um, put on hold for for a period of time and are now just starting to to come back. A lot of that's been because of uh, uh, physician guidance and and guidance from uh, across the country I'm, I don't know. I've heard ERs are slow, but I don't know how many patients who have needed to get care or that we can quantify the number of patients that needed to get care in the pediatric population who then had a delay. And that may be more challenging to, to tease out. Well, uh, thank you very much, Mark. Unfortunately, I lost the internet on my computer, so I had to use that little iPad. <laughs> but I want to thank uh, Dr. Mark Law for uh, your contribution to this um, podcast. And um, 
I think it really helps a lot kind of see a little bit more a picture of a world that we don't see that that often us in uh, adult cardiology. So thank you very much, Dr. Law, and appreciate again your great work at the Children's Hospital. Thank you. I look forward to joining you guys again. Thank you. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.